The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. Would you read there with me as we look at God's Word and what it has to say to us this morning? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be a holy and should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God, as we come to your word this morning, I am reminded at how awesome of a responsibility I am given as a minister of your word. The truth is, Lord, um, it's really easy for men like myself to do what we do only through the power of the flesh, relying solely upon the giftings of being able to communicate and use words. But Lord, I recognize that this morning, as we humble ourselves under your word, there's something so much greater than our entertainment that can take place here that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can breathe life into the Scriptures in such a way that awakens our hearts and our senses, that it awakens us to the the power of your voice and your desire to redeem and to call us out of slavery and to set free. So Father, we call upon you to do that work in us today. Would you meet your people? Would you use your word? Would you you use the words of this man up here to reach into the hearts of those that you love and to cause in them a new work, a new freedom as we reorient our identity on the gospel? God, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Identity. Identity. Um, 
It's interesting to me that when I sought to answer the question, where do we obtain a sense of identity, that there was really no unified source for determining how it is that identity is formed. Now the reason for this is that our identity is formed not in a, in a one-time event, but in multiple things that we think and stuff that happens in our hearts. It's, it's formed in the rehearsing of truths or things that we believe to be true regarding several questions that we ask. Now these questions come into us in a variety of ways. They're questions that sort of subconsciously we're all asking. It's questions like this. Who am I? Who am I? What defines me? How do I know that I matter? How am I perceived? And am I known? Am I loved? What am I worth? What are the most common markers of my life? What's that thread that I see running through my life that, that gives me a sense of this is who I am and how I have value? Where am I headed? Where am I going? What's my purpose, my aim, my direction? How we answer these questions matters. Beneath the answers to these questions lies a subconscious summary from which we obtain a sense of intrinsic worth and value and personhood. Now this summary is usually what we refer to when we speak about identity, our identity. Our identity is sort of a, a, a junk drawer term for where we stick all the answers to this question. Does that make sense? So all those questions, we take all the info, the data that we can grab, and we, we shove that in this one little core, and we say, okay, this is my identity, this is who I am. Now, in an effort to answer these questions, we have to take an inventory of our lives, don't we? We begin to think, okay, so how do I determine this? How do I know who I am? How do I, how do I know how I'm perceived and, and whether or not I'm known? Or how do I know that I matter, or that I'm loved, or that I have worth? How do I know these things? Where, where am I headed? What, what is the course of my life? And since measuring things that are less tangible takes a lot of effort and thought and soul searching, a lot of times what we do is we go for the low-hanging fruit. We go for the things that are tangible, the things that we can see. And we, we, we choose to pull our identity from those things that, that are a little bit easier for us to measure. A metric that, that in some ways sort of shortcuts the process of deep soul searching and filleting ourselves open before God and saying, God, what do you think of me? And so, we stop thinking deeper we think more shallowly, we look for the tangible things. And, and a lot of times if you ask a random person, you, you say, well, well, who are you? Who are you? How are they likely to respond? They're probably gonna respond with something like, well, I'm a, you know, 
I'm an artist. I'm a, a mill worker. I, I have a construction company. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a part of a family. We pull our identity from those things that are a little bit easier to see. I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a banker, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a student, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm an addict, I'm a victim, or any one of a host of other things that we think make up our identity. And we give these answers because the most tangible evidence in front of us is our gathered common experience. That is, over the course of our lives, we, we look at, okay, what are the most common things in my life? Well, I go to work every day, so I'm a, I'm a worker. I, I'm married. I see my wife every day. I'm, I'm a husband. I manage kids all the time. I'm a mom. In other words, we derive a sense of identity from what we devote the most time and energy and attention to. Now, the problem enters in here. The problem is that many of these things we devote ourselves to in life are constantly shifting. They're moving. They don't stay static. Now this leaves our sense of value and worth subject to the constant fluctuations and changes in life. For example, for the, the guy who finds his identity in his career, one day he retires. And then he, it's like, who am I now that I'm not a worker? He's sort of lost. He goes through a sort of identity crisis because he, he doesn't know what he is outside of what he does or what he produces or what he brings to the table tangibly. For the mom who finds her identity in motherhood, one day the kids grow up. They leave the home. They move on. They get married. They go away to college. They think they're smarter than you. And then moms, oftentimes, in that empty nest period, go through a drastic change because they're having to reorient their identity in something else. How do I know I'm valuable? How do I know I'm loved, that I have worth? What's my direction? What's my purpose? How, what do I live for? You see those things that we oftentimes pull as, as the source of our identity fail us. It happens again and again when the marriage fails, when our bodily health takes a turn, when we graduate, when that beloved parent or spouse that made us feel loved or valued dies and they're no longer with us. And we lose our sense of worth and value and identity. You know, in the wisdom writings of other cultures, this is often called the red dust. This is a reference to um, an area in Asia where the red clay is just super, super fine. It's a super fine um, clay dust that just kind of coats and covers everything. And so you walk around in it all the time, and everybody's covered in it. Everything is covered in it. And you just think that the world is sort of tinted red till you go down to the watering hole and you wash off 
And all of a sudden, when the red dust is washed away, there you are, the true you. The things we obtain a sense of identity from often blind us. They, They cling to us. And we think this is the actual color of the world that we live in. I am worth something because I am a worker, because I'm a mom, because I'm a pastor, because I'm whatever. You fill in the blank. And when the rain comes and the dust washes off, we are left with nothing, naked and cold and stripped bare. Now, in our study of Ephesians, We are taking a look specifically at grounding our identity in Christ Jesus. This is our goal. This is our primary aim. Now, previously, Pastor Jeff led us through some of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ as he covered what it means for us to be chosen and adopted. But today, we will look specifically at verses 6 and 7 from our passage here and what it means to be forgiven and redeemed. In verse 6, it says, This to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redeemed. Forgiven. You know, the Bible tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, part of that is being chosen and adopted. Two other aspects of that, though, is what is talked about here in verses 6 and 7. To be forgiven. To be redeemed. Now, this is a reference, if you will, to the Old Testament. Specifically, the... the, um, The reference to blood, by his blood, he has redeemed us and forgiven us. You know, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to have your sins taken care of, if there was something that was going on in your life, you had had some measure of guilt or shame, and you were feeling convicted about it, what you would do is grab a a lamb or um, a, a goat You would haul it all the way to the temple, no matter what part of Israel you lived in. You would haul it all the way to the temple. When you got to the temple, you were greeted in the temple courtyard by priests, and you would stand in line, and you would wait, and the priest would, as your turn came up, he would invite you to come up to the altar. As you approached the altar, the the priest would grab a hold of the lamb. You would place your hand on the lamb. Simultaneously, as your hand is on the lamb, you would begin to confess your sin, your guilt, your shame, okay? You would say, um, God, forgive me for being a liar, a cheat, a thief, whatever it is. You would then symbolically transfer the guilt of your sin onto that animal. At the same time that you are confessing your sins, the priest who is standing by holding on to the lamb, holding on to the goat, or whatever it is, would grab a knife, and he would stick it right here in the neck of the lamb, and he would cut across with one smooth gesture, and all of the blood from the carotid arteries 
would be spilling out. He would then take a bowl and quickly shove it underneath the neck of this lamb, grab as much blood as he could out of that lamb's body. He would take some hyssop then, dip it inside of this bowl, and he would sprinkle the blood of that lamb or that goat on the horns or the four corners of the altar. And then the, the lamb would be butchered and, and, and burned as a sacrifice. With the rest of the blood, though, with the other remaining part, he would take that blood and then sprinkle it on you. Okay? So here you came to worship, you, you need your sins forgiven, and you, you bring, you know, lamb chopped, your kid's pet, Right, you bring a little lamb chop up, and you're like, "I'm sorry, lamb chop. Feeling really bad about last night." You put your hand on lamb chop. Priest cuts the neck. Then he takes lamb chop's blood, sprinkles it all over you. When you go home, you are covered in the blood of that animal. Now, the blood being tied to the altar—it's as though. The life of that animal is now tied with your life. Being offered up as a sacrifice as a result of your sin, as payment, as penalty for your sin. You're sharing the same lifeblood, if you will. Okay? It tied your life to the life that was offered on that altar. And, and, and the blood that was on you was a symbol it was a symbol that, that atonement had taken place, that sin had been gathered up and had been wrapped up in the body of this lamb, offered to God as a sacrifice, as penalty for your sin, and now you were forgiven and you were redeemed. It's a pretty brutal way when you think about it, what that actually means. And, and, and here... Paul is making this reference, and he says it's through his blood, through the blood of Jesus upon the cross, that we are now redeemed, that we are now forgiven. His blood offered up on that eternal altar is now covering us. As a result, my sin is done away with, I am forgiven. The price, the penalty for my sin has been paid and I have been redeemed. And as a result, I'm free. You know, sadly though, this teaching is the common teaching of the gospel in the church and yet many Christians never fully live in all that Christ has purchased for them. Paul, at this very moment, is now writing to Christians, people who've been saved. Their hearts have been washed. They understand the grace of God. They get the concept of the cross, but he's now reminding them, this is who you are. You need to be reminded of this. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. Many Christians live with a constant shame. The constant feeling that they are somehow irredeemable. Now since the fall of Adam and the entrance of sin into the world, man has always struggled with this. How do I deal with sin? 
How, how do I deal when I, with, with conviction when I feel it? And how do I overcome it? We wrestle with the fact that, that the version of us that is in our minds is oftentimes so much different than the version of us that is being lived out in reality. I want to believe in my heart that I'm better than I really am. We wrestle with it, that fact. We wrestle that the version of us in our minds is not all that accurate and how our understanding of our sin affects our identity. And as a result, there's typically three responses to conviction over sin. These responses inform our sense of identity and they whisper to our soul the strength of our value and our worth. And these responses look like this. First of all, there's shame. I feel conviction over sin, over the things that I've done, and my first thought is, I am a bad person. Now, there's a difference between guilt. Guilt is, I feel bad for what I've done. Shame, on the other hand, is I feel bad about who I am, okay? It's a sum total statement about my worth and value. It's about who I am. The second response, though, is not just shame, but oftentimes people you know, they go, I don't want to feel bad. I'm tired of feeling bad. I've, I've felt bad my whole life. So what they do is they harden against guilt and conviction through pride. It's the second response, through pride. Pride is that sense of I am not what God says I am. When conviction comes, when I feel guilt, I find a way around it. I resist. And the third response is humble faith. Humble faith. This is where the person who is experiencing conviction, who's experiencing guilt, all of a sudden says, you know what? You're right. That's me. God, when I look into the perfect law of your word, I am condemned. I'm guilty. My only hope my only saving grace is that you would somehow pay the penalty for my sin and that you would somehow set me free, that you would somehow change me and, and, and revamp the motivations of my heart, that you would sanctify me and direct me and give me purpose. So three responses to, convi to conviction. First of all, shame. Second of all, pride. Thirdly, humble faith. And, and oftentimes, these are the very things that are informing our identity. They keep us from truly knowing who we are. They are the red dust that sticks to us. And the truth of God's word has to be brought to bear in our lives so that we can wash away the dust, see who we truly are, and stand before God in humility and cling to the cross and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the mechanics of that for just a minute. Let's talk about shame, having a shame identity. Where in culture do we see shame? I, I think it doesn't take long of going through the grocery store, right, getting to the magazine racks, where we see shame being promoted as a motivator. Oh, man. 
so-and-so famous person put on 57 pounds in their pregnancy. Shame. Body image shame, right? If I don't fit a certain body type, if I don't fit a certain standard that everybody else seems to think that we should live by, then I should feel shamed about who I am because my body defines my worth and value. My physical stature is representative of who I am and what I'm worth and how I matter. Another one, poverty shame. You grow up poor. You see people with other things and they get to do amazing things and travel to distant places. The magazine racks are filled with offerings of don't you wish your life was like this? Shouldn't you be ashamed that you don't get to enjoy life like this? Poverty shame. And people who grow up in neighborhoods that are poor carry with them into adult life a sense that I am worth nothing, I have no value because I don't have any money. And oftentimes the culture that is created in these shame environments is get money at all costs because your worth and your value is determined by what you have. So if you got a grill and bling and a low rider, man, you, you are the cat's meow. We gain our sense of value and worth from what we have, from our possessions. Here's another type of shame, victim shame. This is where somebody, somewhere in a person's life hurts them and wounds them. And they get hurt deep. A molestation, a spouse who cheats, or a major event that takes place, or some form of abuse, or there's alcoholism in the home, or there's, there's something that happens, and a person becomes wounded, and they get hurt, and they begin to say, the sum total of my worth and value is that I'm, I'm a punching bag for others. I'm a victim. I can't let go of my pain because it reminds me of what I'm worth. I can't be healed of this because it's the constant reminder to me of the value of my life. Sometimes it's it's guilty shame. <laughs> it's interesting. I remember when my kids were little. Um, I, we, I grew up with spankings. I don't know about all you guys. Um, uh, but I, I carried that on into my own parenting. And we've spanked our kids all the way until they got old enough that a spanking was something that they laughed at. <laughs> okay? So we tried to hang on to that as much as we possibly could all the way through. Now, I can remember, though, when, when my son in particular was little because he was the one out of anybody in our family who got the most spankings, right? Uh, he's just the most wild and rambunctious, and whatever goes into his head, he thinks, I should do that, right? <laughs> and, and it's really interesting, though, um, because you could watch him. And there was times for us as parents where we would just be lazy. You know, you're like, I don't want to spank him. <laughs> Gosh, I'm just worn out 
Right? Sometimes you feel like you got to hang a wooden spoon around your neck or something. It's just like constant, constant discipline being brought into his life. Because whatever comes into his mind, he's going to do. And so you're just constantly correcting him. And sometimes you just get worn out. And you get to the place where you're like, I'm not going to spank him. I just can't. I don't want that to be the entire basis of our relationship. So you avoid, right? You try counting. One. You try threatening. You want me to put you in the corner? I'm going to take away video games. I'm going to take away media. You're not going to get to watch TV. You're going to have to stay home. You won't be able to go out with your friends. We try threats. We try any kind of motivation to change the behavior that we can. Because ultimately what we're trying to avoid is the discipline step, right? How many of you guys can relate to that? Any, any of you parents out there? Excellent. You know what happens though? How many of you guys have seen this? They just keep spinning worse and worse. Until the discipline comes and you hit the reset button and guilt is done away with, the bad behavior just gets worse and worse. It's like, okay, where's the boundaries? Where's the walls? Where's the fence? I'm just going to keep climbing and keep going until I get over here to where you finally tell me, no, that's enough. Stop. And I remember my son just being that kid who he would just, until you spanked him, he would just go from one no-no to another no-no to another no-no and to another no-no until finally you're like, I don't have a choice. I have to spank you to make it stop. <laughs> and then we would sit together. I'd pull him up on my knee and I'd say, son, you know that I love you, right? Yeah, Dad, I know. Why do I have to spank you? Because you have to teach me. Yep. Now let's go to Jesus. Go ahead, son, you pray. And he would go to the cross, and he would confess his sins to the Lord. We raised him like that since he was a little kid. Now my hope is that as an adult, as he's moving towards maturity, he's going to know that pattern for himself. I can't just keep spinning in guilt. I can't let that shame rest on me. And there's a kind of guilty shame in society where people just go from one no-no to the next. There's still three-year-old little kids in 40-year-old bodies bouncing from one no-no to the next no-no because never does anybody set a boundary in their life and say you cannot pass this line because they never yield to the hand of correction. So there's all kinds of shame in our society. So how does that shame affect us? Well, it causes us, first of all, if we let shame rest on us, if we let it sit there, body shame, Guilty shame, poverty shame, victim shame. If that becomes our identity, we assume that. It causes us, first of all, to give up hope of redemption and to plunge into sin, just like Elijah. We go, yep, I'm a loser. This is what losers do. Forget it. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm tired of feeling bad about who I am. The other thing it does is it keeps us centered on our own weakness. We derive our sense of identity from the fact that we failed. 
And rather than turning to God's strength to save and redeem us, we are content to live in a place of continuous shame. We say, just try harder. You're stupid. You're not smart enough. You don't do the right things. Just try harder. Try harder. Try harder. And it's an endless loop of waiting for the other shoe to drop. When am I going to screw it up next? That shame keeps us centered on our own weakness rather than God's strength, and rather than coming to him for direction, for, for redemption. And thirdly, it, it dooms us to repeat the same mistakes over and over. Let me give you an example of this. When a person lets shame settle on them, let's say it's a person who's been victimized. They were abused, or they, they, they were married to somebody who was abusive. A lot of times, you guys have seen this pattern. You know what I'm talking about. They go from one abusive relationship, they finally get fed up, the family intervenes, whatever happens, that relationship blows apart, and what do they do? What do they do? They go right back into another relationship of the same caliber. Why? Why does that cycle repeat? Why do we keep bouncing back into the same patterns? Because shame has settled on us, and we say, this is what I'm worth This is how I determine my value. If I could just fix this, if I could just unlock this, if I put myself back in the same situation all over again, and I could somehow tweak it and make it right, I'll be better if I can overcome this because my shame is my identity. Fourthly, shame causes us to hide. Remember, what, what was the, the first response? They're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are, are there, right? And, and, and they've eaten from the fruit, and Jesus comes to meet with them in the cool of the day. And he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and, and what, does, what does God say to them? Do you guys remember? What does God say? Adam, where are you? Where's Adam? Where is he? He's hiding. Shame causes us to hide. We don't want to come into the light. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to see what's really there. We don't want, we're afraid to look into the abyss of our own souls. And shame keeps us paralyzed in the dark, reaching for fig leaves. The other response is not shame, but pride. Now, pride is, is, is the reverse of that. It's not, okay, I'm tired of feeling guilty, so I'm going to deny all accountability for my sin. How does having a pride identity work against us? Well, it keeps us from feeling the consequences of sin. Because we're always avoiding accepting responsibility for it. The consequences of sin exist as an agent of change in our lives. We're like Saul who will not take responsibility for his actions. And is constantly blaming the people. Well, well Saul, how come you, you didn't kill the king? How come you have, what's the bleeding of, of, of sheep and goats that I hear? Well, the, well, you know, the people, they just, no, you're the king. You take responsibility for what you did. Like Adam in the garden, 
Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? The the woman that you gave me. It was her. She told me, and I was like, yeah. I was scared. How many of you husbands can relate to that? (laughs) You don't turn down dinner. (laughs) That's bad. We constantly push off the accountability for our actions and for our sins, and as a result of that, we end up in a position where we never accept responsibility, we never are accountable, and we don't feel the weight of our sin, and it doesn't help us change. We aren't sanctified. Let me give you a good example of this. Here's one that I encounter a lot in ministry. I do a lot of the counseling here at the church, and, um, and a, a real common one is the issue of pornography addiction. It's, it's rampant. It's very constant. It's a constant influx. And some guys I see just fighting for freedom. Then I'll ask them. I, I always ask the same question. Does your wife know? No, you know, I, just, I don't know that she can. I just, I have to be careful. Because I don't know that she can take it. I don't know that she can bear it. Man, I get it. I totally understand. Here's the problem, though. As long as you feel free to hide things from her, you will feel free to hide things from her. The moment you say, when I fail, I'll own every ounce of responsibility for my sin. The moment that I fail, I will take full responsibility for my sin. You feel the weight and the consequences. When it stays hidden, you never feel that. It never pushes you to change. It never never motivates you to take responsibility for your sin and for, for your actions. You don't see your sin as having consequences because you buffer the consequences of your sin. So pride, it keeps us from experiencing those consequences by avoiding accepting responsibility for our sins. Second of all, it keeps us from seeking a remedy because we are propelled by further self-reliance. No, I can, I can do this. I got this. I can figure it out. No, if I, 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 know, what I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to have devotions every day this week. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to get involved in, a, in an accountability group. I'm going I'm to be different. I can change. I know I can do this. Just give me a little bit more time. And we become self-reliant. Having a pride identity crushes you under the weight of having to carry the burden yourself. I'm responsible for me. As a result of being responsible for me, I'm the agent of change. I have to somehow muster up in me the desire to be different, the the desire to live different. Somehow I have to muster up the strength that I seem to be powerless against. How do I do that? And it's this endless cycle. It's this loop that you get stuck in. If I just try harder, I can do better. I know I can. And it's devoid of a dependence upon Jesus, a true and deep dependence upon him. 
So when I ask this question, what is your identity? What is your identity? Where do you pull your sense of worth, your sense of value? Where does that come from? How do you answer that today? What's what's your response? You know now that it can't be in those things that are constantly shifting, like I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a worker. Dad and father are the same thing, but (laughs) sorry. I'm a husband. There. How do I determine my sense of worth and value? How do I determine who I am? I'm going to give you three things that are life-changing words, okay? Life-changing words based upon our scriptures today. It's this. What is our true identity? First of all, guilty. Guilty. Second of all, forgiven. Forgiven. Thirdly, redeemed. Redeemed. Jonathan Edwards, the the great Puritan preacher, describes for us the plight of the guilty in his, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He first destroys any hope of our ability to wiggle out of giving an account for our lives. He builds this case in this sermon based upon one scripture. It's a great one. He talks about how it's slippery for the wayward, right? And they're trying to stand, but they just keep slipping. He says, first of all, God does not lack power to judge the wicked immediately. It is only by his good pleasure that he withholds that judgment at this very hour. In other words, if God wanted to come and give, cause all of us to give an account for our lives at this very moment, he could do that. It is only his mercy, it is only his good pleasure that he does not bring judgment at this very moment. There's nothing holding him back from that. He's God, he does what he wants. Second of all, he says, there's no obstacles to God's justice because every sinner deserves judgment. Not for the sin that he doesn't do, but for the sin that he does. It's like this. It's like when I get pulled over and I'm speeding, right? I'm I'm going, let's say, 75 and a 35, right? Sometimes you're late. And I get pulled over and the police officer says, you were... You know why I pulled you over? Play dumb? No. (laughs) You tell me. (laughs) Well, sir, you were going 75 and a 35. Really? Tap on the register. The needle seems to be working. I I don't know what happened there. Well, officer, you seem like a reasonable guy. Let me reason with you a little bit. You know, I drive this way to work every day. And 364 days out of the year, I drive 35. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, you're not under judgment for the 364 days. You're under judgment for the 365th. In other words, a lot of people think that they can overcome their sin by doing good things. Like if I, if I somehow can tip the scales... 
and I offer to God a, a life that's mostly lived good, then somehow I'm going to, he's going to weigh the two against each other and go, oh, come on in. That's not how it works. You don't get judged for the sins you don't do. You get judged for the sins that you do. He says, condemnation is the plight of the unbeliever already, according to John 3.18. John 3.18 tells us this, that we're condemned already because we have not believed in the Son of God. Condemnation already exists. Fourthly, he says, God's wrath is not just a future event, but an ever-present reality. Hear that. God's wrath is not just a future event, but an ever-present reality. That hatred of all sin and its effects is currently being stored up by God. Here's what that means. That means every sin, he's looking at the ripple effects and the things that's happening, and he hates it. And he's like, I'm going to judge for that. I'm going to deal with that. Righteousness will reign. I'm keeping an account of that. And I'm storing up my wrath for the day of judgment. It's not just some future event. It's an ever-present, growing reality. Fifthly, he says, there is nowhere for men to run from the wrath of God at their sin. I love the way he puts it. He says, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering so weak that it won't bear their weight. Isn't that a great picture? For me, it's a little bit more lively. I spent some time uh, doing some missionary work in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And there, you know, they have sort of the outhouse model. But the outhouse is like some sticks buried in the ground upright to make a sort of privacy shade. And then a pit that's dug. And then there are logs that they just kind of flop over the pit. And you walk out on those logs and take care of business kind of in between the slats, right? The problem is an older outhouse has rotten logs. So you got to be careful. You better test the weight before you step out on the platform. He says, hey, that's the life of a sinner. They're treading on the surface of hell on boards that are rotten and cannot bear the weight of their wickedness and sin. Then he says this, Almost every man that hears of hell flatters himself, and he thinks that he shall escape it. He depends on himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind, how he shall avoid damnation, and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself, and that his schemes won't fail. In other words, he thinks he can get around God, but he cannot. And he convinces himself, no, 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 God's not really that mad or that upset about that rebellion. It's not that big of a deal. Somehow I'll figure out a way around it. God's going to see my good works. He's going to look at the rest of my life and see that I have value outside of the gospel. And and he's going to see that I'm worth saving.
He goes on to describe, he says, how many people who are in hell would tell you that they thought the exact same thing. God's judgment is swift and sure and 100% righteous. And it cannot be avoided. This is our guilt. This is our guilt. Do you hear it? Can you feel it? Can you feel right now the weight of your sin? Let me drive the nail home here just a little bit. I want to read a little bit more from his sermon here. I, I think it's, it's powerful the way that he states it. He says this. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and the mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You're probably not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but you don't see that it is the hand of God in it. But you look at other things as the good state of your bodily constitution or your, your health or the care of your own life and the means of your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to you to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and your prudence and your best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a following rock. Were it not so that, the sovereign, uh, that under the sovereign pleasure of God, he sustains you, the earth would not bear you for one moment, for you burden the earth. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light so that you can serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God, and they don't willingly sub subserve to any other purpose, and they groan when they are abused by you. Can you feel that? We want to argue against it, don't you? Don't you want to say, no, no God's really loving. He, he's really caring. He, we, he, doesn't, he doesn't desire for people to be, to be uh, sent to hell. And you're right. He doesn't. 
He has fought tooth and nail to keep people from going to hell. He even sent his son to bear the weight of our sin, that lead weight that is pulling us into the flames of hell. He sent his son to bear that weight for us. It was his blood that became for us our redemption and our forgiveness. And if we think there is another way, we do despise the good grace of God. You see, we are guilty. And every sin that we commit is pulling us towards judgment. Jonathan Edwards concluded his sermon by saying this, now let every man that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. We are guilty. But that's not all of the words I gave you. For those of you who are in Christ, you are guilty and you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, but you're redeemed. Forgiven is the canceling of your debt, the doing away with. Redeemed is the giving of value and worth and life. You have value to God because of his son. There's one story in the Bible that I think really sums this up really well through a picture for us, and that's the story of the prodigal son. You guys know it. I think probably those of you who have been around church long enough kind of know the details, the particulars, but it goes like this. The son, or the father, has two sons. One son sort of stays there and works the farm and stays with the father and, and, and really feels in some sense that the father owes him something. The other son, though, on the other hand, says, hey, Dad, I wish you were pretty much dead. I, uh, I, I'd rather have my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you're dead, so if you give it to me now, I'll go live in Vegas and we'll both be happy because I pretty much despise you. The father says, okay, take it. Take what's yours. He takes his half of the inheritance. He runs out. He squanders it in a far country with wine, women, and song. And he finds himself poor and destitute and slopping pigs and longing to eat what the pigs eat. And all of a sudden, he has this moment. He comes to himself. He's like, man, even the slaves in my father's house have it better than that. I'm, I'm going, maybe he'll just make me a slave. Maybe I could just be an employee at the farm. I know I, I, he probably hates my guts, but at least there I'm not eating pig slop. So he leaves. He, he goes back. He makes a long journey home. When he hits the driveway, the father is in the house. And while he's still a long ways off, the father looks out and he recognizes his son. You guys know how you do that? How you can recognize your kids by the way that they walk, the stature of their shoulders, or the, the, the personality that they have. You know them. You know your kid. You, he looks out. He sees his kid. Boom! The screen door comes flat, flying open, slaps against the house. Here comes dad at a full run. Flip-flops flopping. The son is head down, covered in shame. So humiliating. 
I can't believe I'm going to have to do this. And he's rehearsing his speech in his mind. Okay, when I get there, I'm just going to say, okay, I know that I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore, but can I just get a job? I just need a job. All of a sudden, he hears the sound of flip-flops. Here comes dad. He tenses up. He's, He's not quite sure what to expect. As dad comes running in, pretty soon, though, the arms fly open. And dad is running at him, ready to embrace. Father grabs son. Son is trying to get out the speech. But he can't because he's cradled in the embrace of his father. That is forgiveness. That is forgiveness. I let go of the debt. The debt is paid. Now I want you to see redemption. Ready? This is what redemption looks like. After he embraces his son, he takes off his ring, the symbol of his authority. He puts it on his son. He takes off his outer robe, that symbol of his stature in the house. He puts that robe on his son. He yells out to the servants, we're throwing a party! He says, kill the fatted calf. Start the music. Get the barbecue hot. My son, who was dead, is alive. See, forgiveness is just the canceling of debt. But redemption is the restoration of full value. You, my friends, are guilty, but forgiven and redeemed. Through the blood of Jesus. You know, there's another person, everybody always has to point this out. There's another person in the story, it's the older brother, right? He's there. And for the one who feels shame, God says to him, You are forgiven, you are redeemed. But to the one who feels pride, he's like, I was here the whole time. You never threw me a party. I wanted, I wanted a fatted calf barbecue. What's going on? The father says to him something really simple. In the rebellious brother, God deals with his shame, but in the prideful brother, he says to him, isn't it worth celebrating how I forgive and make whole? Wouldn't you like to join the party? Some of you, some of us, at times have hardened ourselves through pride and we say, hey, you know, Jesus saved me initially or maybe you've never been saved. You've never had that encounter where you've been broken by your sin and you've seen your guilt and shame for what it is. And you think, no, I'm a good person. I got my life together. When I look at my life, it's basically a good life. I'm a good, I'm a good guy. To you, the Father says, isn't it wonderful though to be forgiven? Isn't it wonderful to be redeemed? Don't you want to join the party? Isn't it a lot of work thinking that if I'm just good enough, if I just try hard enough, that God is somehow going to be happy with me? Don't you want to join the party over here where I love you regardless of your performance? Don't you want to be a part of that? Let go of your pride. Lay it down. 
be forgiven. One final story. There's a gal named Sharon Hirsch, and she's a licensed professional counselor and author, speaker, teacher, and she's also a certified life coach um, at RTS in Orlando. And she tells a story where she recalled visiting a village in uh, a region of Cambodia. Uh, once it was strong with the Khmer Rouge. Anybody remember the Khmer Rouge? They're the ones who gave birth to uh, Pol Pot and his evil dictatorship and the, the, the thousands and thousands of people who were slain because of his cruelty. There was enough torture and murder to constitute a full-on genocide there. Uh, the people that were in this village were a part of the Khmer Rouge. And as a result of that, now Pol Pot is gone. That's been done away with. But they never, ever really leave that village. Because of this dark history right here, because of what has happened in the past, the association with them is so painful that for them to leave the village puts their life at risk. There's dangers for them to leave the village because the association with Khmer Rouge and with Pol Pot still weighs them down, still weighs over them. And so... They exist as farmers in this community. The gospel, though, has come to this village. And this counselor went to go and, and visit them. And she said, Hirsch said that a Christian church service in the village might have been one of the most vibrant experiences of worship that she has ever been witness to. There was so much joy and so much emotion and so much confession and so much exaltation of and desire for God. They were excited. They were expectant. They were enthusiastic. They were enthralled. And then it says, yeah, she goes, okay, is it always like this? I mean, is this what your worship services are normally like? Is it, is it always like this? She says, that the response came, yes. You see, they believe that God is the only one who wants them. And so they want him. That phrase, they believe God is the only one who wants them, was so heartbreaking, so thrilling at the same time. Listen, to be totally known, Dr. Hirsch said later, and still to be wanted is the way to liberation. To be found guilty, forgiven, and redeemed is to be fully known and immeasurably loved. Listen to me. You who are guilty... You who today have heard the word of God and experienced the weight of your sin hanging you, suspending you over the flames of hell, and you realize that there is no way out. Those of you who have heard this good word, that God sent his son, Jesus, to pay the consequence for your sin, that you might be forgiven, that you might be redeemed, there is no 
greater joy than knowing that you are fully known and fully loved. Yeah, some of you guys would never be able to wound me. Uh, one, I've, I've got like the, they say to be a pastor in the first place, you have to have a, the heart of a child. I've got the brain of a child and, and the skin of a rhino, right? In other words, you've got to be able to take some hits. Um, and it's, it's very rare that somebody can actually wound me because they don't really know me. <laughs> you know, for the most part, I look out. And there's a very few people in here that really know me, but there's a few people in my life, I'll tell you, with one sentence, they can lay me bare because they know. They know who I am. The scariest thing on the earth is to be known. What really happens in here? What really goes on? That's the scariest thing in the, on, on the planet. But to have all of that brought open before God, every secret, every sin, every burden that I've carried, every bit of shame, every ounce of disgust at my own life, to have that brought before God, He sees it all. Nothing is hidden. As a matter of fact, I'm still in the process of sanctification. And when I'm 85 years old, he's still going to be changing me. Those are things I haven't even yet discovered. The darkness that's in my heart. But he sees it all, cover to cover. He knows every bit of it. And you know what? He loves me. True freedom is to be fully known and fully loved. Guys, we pull our identity from being guilty, being forgiven, and being redeemed. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we've been able to explore here today. Thank you for sending your son to pay for our sins. Thank you, God, that we stand here, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we stand here forgiven that our shame no longer has a grip on us and that our pride can be laid down because there's nothing to defend. You love us even though you know us. God, thank you for your grace. I pray now that as we wrap up this day and as we go our separate ways to fellowship that your words would be running around in our hearts and for those who maybe are here and don't know you that you would call them that you would affirm in them the greatness of your love that you would awaken them by your holy spirit to the gospel and their need for it for those who've been living as believers under constant shame god would you show them the path to freedom would you direct their lives and lead them out of that life. Lord, you took the children of Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. God, get that shame out of us. Reorient our identity in the gospel and set our course for that golden city. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hey, I know I've run a little bit long, but I want to do this real quick. Um, for those of you who can stay, those of you who have to go, you have blood sugar issues or whatever, awesome, I totally get it, I understand, and, and you're welcome to depart. Those of you who can stay, I want you to just take just a few minutes right now. Would you do business with the Lord? Would you take just a minute right now 
in the quietness of your heart to just bow your head and say, God, this is my junk. I've been hiding it. I've been squirreling it away. I've been sidestepping. I've been blaming others. But now's my moment. The offer is good for right now. You know me. You see it all. And you still love me. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me new. Would you do that? We're going to take just a moment to sing one last song. If you'd like to linger and pray, if you want somebody to pray with you, the elders are going to be at the back of the church and others will be back there to pray with you, huddle leaders, and uh, they'll make themselves available to pray with you. Let's stand and sing this final song. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you guys.